got a Bible, phone, something that has the Word of God on it, go ahead and make your way over to Matthew chapter 27. So while Jesus was hanging upon the cross, he made seven different statements uh, during that time period. And we've been going through those seven different statements. We'll continue to go through them until we get to uh, Easter morning when we celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Lord. Now, uh, the first week we, we looked at, we considered Jesus' prayer when he, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then last week we looked at his words to, uh, that he spoke to his mother and then he spoke to the Apostle John when he said, uh, Woman, behold your son, and, and to John, behold your mother. Today is the third week in this series, and today we're going to be seeking to better understand what Jesus means when he asks God the Father, Why have you forsaken me? Um, if I'm honest, I've thought about these words a lot over the years. I've never taken the time until recently to look at them in, in great detail. And uh, it, it's been a, a, one of those weeks where you, you look at this passage over and over and over again, and, and you're trying to understand it in, in all these different ways, and it's, it's beautiful. I absolutely love it at this point, but if I, you know, to be honest, a few weeks ago, I, I didn't know what I was going to preach on uh, this week when we got here. <laughs> So anyway, it's pretty excited that way, and as usual, though, we're going to read the entire context there, so uh, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45, is where we'll start today. <clears throat> now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all uh, over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Almighty God, May the many things that we need to get done and the worries in our hearts be silenced for a moment this morning as we turn our attention to, to learn from these words that you spoke from the cross. God, we ask that through your written word and through the preached word that we may better know the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So it's been said that you, you can't really experience another person's experience. What I, what I mean is there, there's some ways that we can relate to each other. Um, most of you in here know what it's like to live in Kansas in 2018. Uh, we know what it's like to have Donald Trump as our president in this nation. We, we share the experience of, of what it means to speak English. Uh, many of us know what it's like to, to be a man. and Many of us know what it's like to be a, a woman. You, you, you know, but, but you've had some... Uh, have you ever had someone try to explain to you the, the, the pain they're feeling at any moment? You start asking these questions. Is it sharp? Is it, is it dull? Where is it? What's it feel like? And, and it's hard to really understand another person's pain. If it's emotional pain, it's even more difficult. Uh, it's just really difficult to know what another person really feels, what they experience. I, I, I can't know, never will be able to know what, what it's like, or, you know, what it was like for Rosa Parks to sit on that bus in 1955. I'll never know the stress that George W. Bush, Bush felt after 9-11 occurred. 
You know, as a, a man, I'm never going to know what childbirth pain feels like. I've, I've learned up to this point never to compare it to anything at all. <laughs> Even if all my arms were chopped off, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> but that's the way it is. We, we can't quite do that, right? I, I can't share the experience of, uh, of what it feels like to be the oldest child in a family. I can't even really understand what it's like to be the youngest child in the family that you grew up in. Um, I only know my, my own experience, and yet we, we absolutely love these shared experiences to the degree that we can actually have them. I can remember uh, last fall when the Astros won the World Series, Travis, a, a Cubs fan, tells me, now you know what it feels, or what I felt like last year. And, and it was kind of weird, because I can remember him telling me, strangers are going to congratulate you on the street. And they did, and I think, well, I just, all I did was watch. That was my contribution. Uh, but thank you, yes. Uh, we love these shared experiences. I, I know as a, a graduate of Texas A&M, whenever I meet another Aggie, I, I know that they've had some of the same college experiences that I have. They've been to the place that I've been, the, the events, maybe not at the same time, but there's this shared experience, and, and suddenly you have this connection because of it. It's, it's this emotional thing as well, right? The, the shared experiences unite us to other people particularly in the case of pain. I can remember uh, many years ago after Laura had suffered a miscarriage, there was this comfort as other women came alongside her and started to share their own painful experiences in this area. We, we love these shared experiences. And, and I think a text like this brings us to ask this question, what about Jesus? Does, does Jesus really know what it's like to live in the world like we know what it's like to live in the world? I mean, yes, he's human, right? He's divinity, he's human, but does he really know what it's like, like the way you and I experience, know what it's like to, to fail, to know the, the shame of disobeying God, to carry that around. Yes, he was, he was perfect, right? So does he really know what it's like to be a sinner standing before a holy God? And in the one sentence that comes out of his words here, this one sentence from the lips of Jesus confirms for us that he understands what it's like to be a sinner, even though he'd never sinned himself. He also understands our, our suffering and pain in ways that we'll never, ever imagine before. And so here in this story, this passage here, we... We have this picture. Jesus is, is hanging on the cross. There's nails through his wrists, nails through his ankles. And he's the stand, or lay, or hanging there, condemned before a holy God. A holy and inflexible God. You know what I mean by that? We, we, we honestly tend to prefer people who are flexible in our life, right? For instance, you're, you go to the store and, and you're paying, and you're paying in cash. I don't know why you'd be paying in cash, but you're paying in cash. And you find yourself three cents short what you want that cashier to say is it's no big deal. It's fine. It's just three cents. Just You're fine. Um, the holiness of God cannot and does not respond to sin like that. It does not respond with, that's fine. No big deal. And, and it can't because, because God is truly holy. And to be truly holy actually means something. Uh, I love the passage. When Isaiah had a vision of being in the presence of God, he, he looks on the holiness and the awesomeness of God, and, and he responds like this. He says in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
suddenly he is completely aware of his own sinfulness. He's aware of his, his own filth because he's looking upon holiness in this moment. He's looking upon perfect holiness. That's the, the same God who looks upon Christ on the cross and, and sees the sin of his people, the, the sins that have been placed upon Jesus. Your sins, my sins. So our passage has this, this strange statement, right? From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there's darkness. The, the hour is there since it's not army time and not normal time. You may not understand it. Uh, it's talking about from noon to three o'clock. Noon to three o'clock in the day, which is the absolute brightest time of any day. And, and one of the things we know here in Kansas, we know that when the sky starts to turn dark at noontime, that a storm is coming. And if you're anything like me, you absolutely hate that feeling. This is, this is the moment when we want to go hide in our basements because we know there's something terrible going on. We need to get away from this. It should not be dark this time of day. It's not safe. This darkness at the crucifixion is the agony of God as he, as he pours out his wrath uh, upon his son. It's a, a fulfillment of a prophecy from, from Amos 8, uh, 9 and 10, one of the prophets, which says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. <clears throat> I will turn your feast in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning with a you, mourning for, for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. You see, here in this, this moment, we as a humans have done what is absolutely detestable. The Son of God has humbled himself. He has entered into our world. It's called the incarnation, that God dwells among men, and we killed him. And the earth groans in darkness. It's incredible fitting here that here at the brightest part of any single day that, <clears throat> that it turns dark when Jesus, who we also know as the light of the world, is being snuffed out. Darkness. Let me ask you, how, how well do you understand why Jesus is upon the cross? I know we can probably all give a, a general theological question, but I mean to be really... Do we really grasp just how damnable sin is? Do, do we think of, of sin kind of like, uh, you young people won't get this, but like Cindy Crawford's mole, right? Ah, it makes her human, right? Sin, it, it makes us human. We're all sinners. Uh, or do we, do we view it rightly, you know, like, like, like some sort of cancer that means absolute harm to us, absolute destruction? In Romans 3.23, God teaches that, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then uh, three chapters later in Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Wages something that we earn. In other words, uh, we're all sinners, every one of us, and the consequences of that sin is death. If there was no sin in the world, death never happens. And, and so Jesus never goes to the cross. That's the way it would have been. But there is sin in the world, and sin causes death. And I know we're thinking, no, no, cancer causes death, accidents cause death, heart attacks cause death, but, but all those things exist because sin entered into a perfect creation. So let me ask you this question, what, what is death, right? It's one of those creepy questions, we don't just push away. You know, we, we might say it's, it's when a human heart stops beating and the body lays motionless. That's the way we observe it when we see it, right? But it's more than that. It's when, the, it's when the soul and the body are separated. 
Um, but sin causes spiritual death, right? So what is spiritual death? When, when we're spiritually dead, and, and we're all born spiritually dead, but when we're spiritually dead, it's a, a separation of our, our soul from God. It, it's disunity. Absolute disunity. Think about it. Think about the first response of Adam and Eve. You, you might know the story. If not, we'll summarize it. They sin in the garden, right? And after they sin, they've had this interaction with God that is wonderful. But after they sin, the first thing they do is they hide from God. This communion, this closeness with God has been broken. And, and not sh- shortly afterwards, they're banished from the garden. There's this separation from God. What we're seeing is that what should be united is now separated. Or think about the prodigal son. This is one of the things we overlooked. The, the son had not died, right? He simply said, you know, Dad, give me my money. I'm going to go and, and live it up for a while. And, and he goes away from the father. And, and when he returns, out of the father's mouth come these words. Luke 15, 24. The father says, for my son was dead and is now alive. Lost and now he's found. You see, death is this, this idea of separation. Bodily death is the separation of, of our soul from our body. And spiritual death is the separation of our soul from God. And sin has caused both of these deaths. That's why on the cross, Jesus takes upon himself all the wrath that we deserved. Not, not for his sin, for, for our sin. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that for those who do not know God, they, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, and then it continues on, away from the presence of the Lord. Eternal separation from God. That is the nastiness of our sin, and, and that gives us a glimpse of, of what Jesus endured upon the cross for us. Jesus bore the absolute full weight, including the emotional distress, of how sin separates us from God. So I guess you want to focus on these words that are the actual focus of our passage here, right? Um, the words of our Lord. Uh, most of what we read from Jesus, I don't know if you always realize this, most of what we read from Jesus is actually translated. Um, Jesus likely spoke Hebrew, likely spoke Koine Greek, languages of the time, but the most common language that was being used was actually Aramaic, and so most of what he said would have been in, in Aramaic. Our New Testament, we read a English translation, but uh, originally is written down in what's called Koine Greek, just common everyday Greek. Um, but for some reason, Matthew and Mark both, when they come to this, this statement right here, they leave it untranslated. It is very, very rare that anything is left untranslated, and yet they do that. And we know that, that authors are always leaving things untranslated when there's something incredibly significant about the words uh, being spoken in the original language. You, uh, you, you know some of these phrases, right? I, I doubt many of you actually speak, speak Latin, but if I say carpe diem, <clears throat> you know what I mean. That's an untranslated statement, seize the day. Uh, many of you Christians know, uh, know this phrase, right? We live life quorum deo. If you don't know it, it's a beautiful phrase. It's also Latin, and it means before the face of God, meaning in the presence of God. You're never away from him. And, and there's something powerful here in these untranslated words coming from the lips of Jesus when he says, Eli, Eli, lemma sabbathani. See, the first two words, Eli, Eli, could be either Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, it's one of those words. It means God, right? My God. Uh, but it's like the word no. Spanish, English, it's the same word. It could be either one. Uh, if I just wrote no on a piece of paper, you wouldn't know if it's Spanish or English. You'd assume English, but you wouldn't know. Um, that's what's going on here. And so some of those present thought that he was actually calling for Elijah, because it sounds so similar. 
He's not crying out for Elijah. He's crying out to, to God. We, we know that. Um, and, and it's just kind of amazing. You know, these are, are truly some of the most profound words recorded in the Scripture, and, and they're not easy to make sense of. And let me give you a few reasons why they're not easy to make sense of. First, um, because Jesus is not the first person to speak these words. These aren't original to him in this moment. They're actually quoted from Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, the, the very first verse, the psalmist writes, word for word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalmist continues on. And he, and he says, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And so the psalmist is writing, and he, and he knows something. He knows that that God could help in the moment of his distress. He knows that he can help, but he also knows that God does not help. And Jesus and the psalmist are both asking this question. Why? Haven't we asked this question before in our life? You know, you know God, why, why couldn't you save my mother, my father from, from cancer? Why, why didn't you? I know you're capable of it. You know that speaking to God, you, you could have prevented the car accident that, that ended the life of those newlyweds that had just been married. You could have prevented my miscarriage, my divorce, my whatever pain you still carry with you. I mean, how many times have we reflected upon what God could have done and asked that question, why? Why, God? I think we need to know that, that God is near us in our suffering. He's truly near us in our suffering, but he doesn't always remove it. It's not an issue of whether God loves you when he doesn't remove it. Healing doesn't always come. Restoration isn't always the end of the story, at least not in this life. And Jesus, in this moment of agony, is also asking that question, why? The second reason, this is a little bit of a strange thing, the reason that it's been twisted in my brain all week is, uh, is this, that um, forsaken, you know, what, what does forsaken really mean in the instance that we're reading it here? And I ask that because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. You understand this? So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. There is perfect unity there between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this unity cannot be broken or to be something less than the Trinity. And yet here Jesus is forsaken. Jesus suffers death, meaning separation. And yet we know that the Trinity can't just be two, right? It can't just be two. There's not even a word for that, really. I mean, I tried to find a word. It doesn't exist. There's no theological term. There's dyad and duo, but those are science terms. Um... And so you've got this struggle in our finite minds, meaning what, what does this mean, forsaken, if it doesn't mean absolute separation in the way that we understand it? It's, it's, it's similar to the issue in the Apostles' Creed. You know the line that you all hate, right? <clears throat> he descended into hell. And, and we say that because that's what we see in the ancient creed, right? It dates back to the third century. And yet we read that and we're like, what does that mean? Um, we know that, he didn't, that, that Jesus didn't go to hell. Um, for instance, you know, for one reason, we know that Jesus told the thief on the cross who repented to him right next to him, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. And so um, on the same day, right, if Jesus were in hell three days, that's not possible. Um, Jesus never went to hell, but on the cross he experienced the wrath of God that's poured out for all those who are condemned to hell. So what's, what's forsaken actually mean, right? Uh, you ever seen an abandoned city, uh, truly abandoned, 
Uh, it's, it's amazing. I remember maybe six years ago when we were driving to, to summer camp, and I don't remember who of you were with us. I see a few that might have been. Um, but we accidentally drove through this town called Pitcher, Oklahoma. And, and Pitcher, Oklahoma, uh, it was a strange feeling because we knew nothing about it, but we pull into this town and we see that there's churches and there's stores and there's homes and there's all kinds of buildings, but there's no people, not a single person. All the buildings were empty. And, and yet it was fairly modern-looking stuff. It's not like when you go into a hundred-year-old kind of abandoned town. It was, a, it was a mining town where they mined zinc and lead, and, and due to the health hazards and unsafe structures because of mining below everyone's properties, um, it was abandoned as recent as 2009. Uh, so we were there pretty quickly after it had been completely abandoned. It's a, a truly forsaken city. There were 1,700 people living there just a few years earlier, and then nothing. And, and the image of this forsaken town, this abandoned town, has forever been this idea of, uh, uh, you know, just struck with me of, of, of what it means to, to see something so quickly uh, abandoned like that. And, and that's just a city, which gives you this, this image, but, but we're talking about, about people. And, and in people, forsaken is, is being abandoned by someone that you thought loved you in the ways that you thought they should love you. You see, the forsakenness here at the cross is that God does not reach out and stop this. And I try to think, what's this like? There's not a lot of things in our world that, that we can really make sense of this through. But, but imagine for a moment uh, 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 the governor of a state and his son has been, been taken to court and found absolutely guilty. Um, and he's been given the, the penalty of, of death. Uh, execution. On the day of his execution, the, uh, the governor is, is their president. The governor is the only one in the state that has the power to, to stop this execution from going through, and, and he doesn't stop it. It's his son, and he doesn't stop it. So it's not just that Jesus felt forsaken. He, he is forsaken. He was forsaken. King, King David <clears throat> wrote in the 37th Psalm, <clears throat> I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And yet, here we, we see the only truly righteous person truly forsaken. I mean, sure we know it all changes after the sacrifice is complete, but in this moment, he is absolutely and fully forsaken. Jesus is, is hanging in our, our place, which explains why he refers to God differently than usual. Usual, if you look through the Gospels, he's always referring to God as my father, my father, my father. And, and yet here he's saying, my God, my God. He's in our place. Again, you know, he's where we belong. Now, don't mistake these words of Jesus for despair. They are not despair. If they had been despair, that it'd be sin because he'd given up hope and what he knows to be true in the words of his father. These are not just these are not words of distrust uh, of distrust, but rather words of distress. There, there's also hope in these words. The fact that he says, "My God," right? You might not realize in the moment, but that's a big deal because he's not saying your God or the God or even just God, but but my God. That's a statement of faith, even in the moment of distress. He's, he's not accusing God, not questioning the love of God. He's not doubting how this is all going to end in the end, but, but he is in distress. In other words, the weight is, is heavy, very, very heavy. And so we're still asking this question, though, right? What, what does this statement of our Lord mean? Why is it recorded in the Scripture? 
Why did Jesus ask it to begin with? And I'll, I'll tell you, it took me most of the week to, to realize the only way we make sense out of this question is to simply answer the question that Jesus asked. It's not directed at us, but it's recorded for us. Can, can you answer this question? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My, you know, why God, why has God the Father forsaken God the Son on the cross? It's not because... Jesus himself is sinful. What we find is that Jesus is experiencing what it means to be forsaken by God for the sake of those he is saving as he stands in their place. Christians, Jesus is experiencing this because if it's not him, then you. If he's not forsaken by God, then it's we who are forsaken by God. Galatians 2.20 says this, this well. It says, I have, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And this is where it ends. It says, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not on the cross with Jesus. You're not on the cross with Jesus. But if your faith is in Christ, then your sin was on the cross with Jesus. So, so listen, this is important because we began talking about how difficult it is to truly experiencing something with someone. And yet, on the cross, Jesus doesn't just experience some vague relation to sinners. Jesus, in this moment, is a sinner. Now, be careful the way that's worded, right? That's to me. Um, in this moment, my sin is on him. Your sin is on him. He knows what it's like to be a sinner and stand before a holy God. Because our, our sin is on him. You understand this, because sometimes this doesn't hit home for us. You know, uh, the pornography you view, the lust in your heart is on Christ as he hangs upon the cross. The racist, racist hatred in your, your thoughts, your cheating in class, your dishonesty at work, your lying and stealing, the, the selfishness and the pride that you feel, the self-righteousness when we feel, when we, when we look on those who are less intelligent or less godly or just less able to handle life than we are, that's on the cross with Christ. Those damaging words you said to your sister with intent to actually break her, all these very real sins were transferred to our very real Lord and the wrath of God was poured out on him for our sins. That's what we're seeing here. That's the answer. That's why God has forsaken him. See, on the cross, Jesus drains the cup of wrath our sin has earned us. And, and we think about this as a picture, right? There's a cup. We might have talked about it at the Lord's Supper last week a little bit, but uh, a cup of wrath. And don't think of it as just one cup. You, you might imagine it as a, uh, there's a cup of wrath for every one of us, right? And Jesus has had the cup of wrath poured out on him. Every one of these cups of wrath for, for those who have looked to him with faith, every one of us. And so either the cup of, of God's wrath is poured out upon Jesus or it awaits the unrepentant individual to be poured out upon him or her eternally forsaken by the Lord God Almighty. And I know this sounds like fire and brimstone. It's not the kind of thing anyone likes to preach about. Uh, you know, it sounds threatening. Uh, but more importantly, this is what God's word teaches us. John 3.18 tells us, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the, the only Son of God. 
And then 16 verses later in John 3.36, we read this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. See, if you don't have faith in Jesus, you you need to know this. I need you to know this, that you too may, may find salvation in his name. You absolutely may. For the rest of you, for those of you who who do look to Jesus with faith, I want you to know that you are never, ever, ever alone in this world. You might feel alone, but you are never alone. You are never forsaken. We can honestly never say this prayer to God ourselves. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can't say it because God will not forsake us. That's the point of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The forsakenness of Christ in this moment secures for us that he will never, we will never be forsaken by the Father. Do you understand that? Jesus was not rescued from the cross. But in faith, you are. He wasn't rescued from the wrath of God, but you are. We never have to know a single day of forsakenness by God because Jesus, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I mean, we, we use that phrase, Jesus loves you all the time. Love is a meaningless phrase until you understand what it means. And you look here, you understand this. Jesus loves you. I want to end in these, these words, beautiful words by A.W. Pink about this very passage. It says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let every believing soul make answer. He, he entered the awful darkness that I might walk in light. He drank the cup of woe that I might drink the cup of joy. He was forsaken that I might be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know the anguish of our human lives. As one who sees the pain of those who suffer, we ask that you bring comfort and peace and strength to us. As one who has experienced the agony of tears and the tears of losing loved ones, we ask that you comfort all who today grieve. As one who has wept over the faithlessness of your people, we ask that you send your spirit to make us faithful to you. As one who understands the agony of those who have been deserted, we ask that you stand alongside all who feel alone and abandoned in this world. As one who was forsaken by all others, Give hope and assurance to those who feel rejection. Make us understand your anguish on the cross so that we will better know the depth of your love for all who you died to save. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.